All right, good evening, everyone. So my topic tonight is, uh, more specifically, uh, what is known in political philosophy as the problem of political obligation. The problem of political obligation and the proposed solution uh, to that problem known as consent theory. Uh, the outline of my talk is as follows. Uh, first, I will explain what political obligation and the problem of political obligation are and why they matter to you. Second, I want to summarize some of the prominent solutions that have been offered to the problem of political obligation, along with what have been identified as some of their primary defects. Third, I'll explain what the consent theory uh, solution to the problem of political obligation is. And then fourth and finally, I want to talk about some more or less specifically Christian ways we might think about this consent theory. So what is political obligation? <clears throat> well, as the expression suggests, political obligation refers to the moral obligation, a moral obligation, either real or imaginary, uh, that an individual has to obey the laws or government under which he lives. Uh, and, and this is an obligation to obey government precisely because or insofar as government is the one doing the commanding. Governments give or at least enforce commands, and political obligation is the alleged moral duty or responsibility that individuals have or are thought to have to comply with or obey those commands for the simple reason that they are given by the government. So political obligation, to be clear, does not have to do with your obligation to do your mo mo those moral duties, your general moral duties, that just happen also to be commanded by government. Uh, examples here would be the prohibition of murder or theft. You already have to not do those. Um, so political obligation has to do with those commands that government gives that, that are, are, are thought to be obligatory simply because government is issuing them. So political obligation has to do then with those positive laws that are only laws because government commands them. So that's uh, political obligation. The problem of political obligation refers to the philosophical task of having to explain where this sense of obligation to obey government's commands comes from. And it is a real problem. While there are some individuals who assume that we have a duty to obey the law simply as a matter of course, the challenge of accounting for where political obligation comes from is one of the foundational problems of all political philosophy. A few moments reflection, after all, is uh, or ought to be enough to impress upon virtually anyone that governments are quite capable of and often do give commands that their subjects have no moral obligation to obey. To give a couple of trifling, though not unmeaningful examples, I would wager that the majority of you drivers broke the speed limit and therefore broke the law just on your way here this evening, right? Admit it, right? Thus revealing your own inner anarchist. And come April 18th, it is almost certain that none of you in this room will have actually paid all of the taxes that your government says that you owe. Even if you thought you did, you didn't, okay? And if you think you did, you don't 
understand taxes. Um, and then there's the fact that many people in the world, both past and present, have had to live under governments that could not be considered legitimate at all. These are the range of considerations that should impress upon us that the question of political obligation is no mere philosophical idol, but a very real and very pressing practical problem. Well, let us consider then some of the major answers that have been offered to this question of political obligation. And I want to begin with the answer that is perhaps the default view for most Bible-believing Christians, whether they realize it or not. And that is what is known as the divine command theory of political obligation. Now, divine command theory in general is the um, meta-ethical, meta-moral view that says what makes something to be morally right or wrong is simply the question of whether God commands it. The divine command theory of political obligation, accordingly, is the view that the reason there is a moral obligation to obey one's government is because God has commanded us to do so. The Apostle Paul is often assumed to imply a divine command theory of political obligation, for example, when, in he, when he says in Romans 13 that every person is to be, quote, subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted of God, end quote. As compelling and conclusive as this line of thinking might seem for many Christians, not Paul's line of thinking, but the divine command theory, um, there are a number of problems with it. A theological concern with divine command theory in general is that it is not quite enough to simply trace moral standards back to the divine will without also bringing in such metaphysical considerations as God's immutable character uh, or the created nature that God has given to human beings. For what explains moral obligation is not simply what God wills in the abstract, as though God could just will anything, but also who God is and what kind of thing God has made human beings to be. As for the problem of political obligation in particular, while it is necessary and important, of course, to know that God is, intent, is indeed the ultimate source of political obligation where and when it exists, this theological truth by itself doesn't answer the question of precisely where and when political obligation does in fact exist. Divine command theory, in other words, may answer the question whether God has ordained that there should be institutions to which we owe political obedience, but it doesn't explain, for example, how we are to identify which governments or which kind of governments are most properly entitled to our obedience, or how we might reform our government so that they more properly conform to God's will, whatever that might be. In situations, for example, where there are rival governments contending for our allegiance, to which of them are we obligated to obey? Or even if there is only one clear established government to which one's political ob uh, obedience is thought to be owed, there's still the question of how it came to be a government to which we owe our obedience in the first place. Finally, there's still the question we raised earlier as to how to determine when an otherwise legitimate government gives a command that we are not obligated to obey. So I think divine command theory fails both as a theological and as a political explanation. It's bad theology and it's bad political philosophy. What an alternative reading of Romans 13 might be is a topic I will return to at the end. Well, if divine command theory doesn't answer the problem of political obligation, what are some of the other solutions that have been proposed? Descending now from the realm of divine will into the realm of human nature, 
Another common proposed solution to the problem of political obligation is what is known as the natural duty theory. According to natural duty theory, human beings are morally obligated to obey their governments as a simple consequence of their own inherent nature as rational, moral, and social beings. As a matter of our moral nature, we have many duties to treat our fellow human beings in certain ways. We all know this. And one of those moral duties, according to moral duty, natural duty theory, uh, one of those moral duties is to cooperate with others in political societies and to do so, moreover, by obeying the laws of those societies. While the natural duty theory is not incompatible with, and indeed I would say requires that God be the ultimate source of those moral duties, what makes the natural duty theory different from, and I think indeed preferable to the divine command theory, is that it more directly connects in a way that divine command theory by itself does not. The issue of political obligation, not just with divine will in the abstract, but with how God has made human beings in particular. Yet as critics of the natural duty theory of political obligation have argued, it suffers from a similar defect to that of divine command theory. While the natural duty theory might establish at best that there is an inherent moral connection between ourselves as moral agents and how we relate to civil government, it is far from clear whether one can draw anything like a straight line from our general moral nature and duties on the one hand to our having specific moral obligations to obey the laws of a particular government on the other. For comparison, consider the moral principle that human beings are to honor their father and mother. From this, it is not at all possible to derive the conclusion that adult and independent children have, therefore, the moral obligation to continue obeying their parents throughout all of their lives. That just doesn't follow. And so it is with our moral duties and our alleged duty to obey government. And even to the extent that one could establish something like a moral duty to obey government in general, there would still be our earlier problem of determining which government one had the moral duty to obey. These are issues that moral duty theorists have been challenged to address. Well, we come now to a third standard model of explaining political obligation. <clears throat> and after the divine command theory, I think the third model is perhaps the one uh, also most commonly held by conservative Christians. <clears throat> and that is what is known as the associative theory of political obligation, the associative theory. According to associative theory, human beings have the obligation to obey their government as a moral consequence of the particular communities to which they belong. Human beings, after all, are not isolated individuals, but only come into existence through and then live out their lives within given and established families, churches, and communities, communities that they did not choose themselves, families that they did not choose themselves. Individuals are typically joined involuntarily or non-voluntarily with others in matters of religion, culture, and ethnicity, all of which form a vast web of interpersonal relationships that shape one's loyalties and moral duties, including one's political duties. According to the associative theory of political obligation, then, what explains an individual's duty to obey government is his membership and hence his particular role or status or position within the community or communities of which he is a part. Unlike divine command or natural moral duty, therefore, uh, one of the strengths of association theory is that it is able to connect more directly our moral duties to a particular community and hence to a particular government, and not just to the idea of government in the abstract. Yet association theory also comes with its own set of challenges. 
While the relationships we have with others in our communities are certainly real and valuable and do come with all sorts of moral duties, it is far from clear that these connections are anywhere near strong enough to justify or ground something so comprehensive or definitive as a standing political duty to obey government in all of its commands just because it's government. Well, this limit of association theory, which tries to ground political obligations in one's largely unchosen and non-voluntary social relationships, has led other political philosophers to, to develop alternative, more uh, what are called transactional theories that seek to ground political obligation in more chosen or voluntary relationships. One such account is that of gratitude theory which says that individuals have an obligation to obey their government out of a sense of gratitude for particular benefits and protections that they have received from their government. Another similar account is the fair play theory, which says that insofar as you are the beneficiary of everyone else in society obeying the laws of that society, out of simple fairness to others, you have an obligation to follow suit, to obey as well. If not, you're cheating. You're not playing fair. Of all the theories we have considered thus far, the gratitude and fair play theories, I think, go the furthest in rendering concrete and specific the moral obligation someone might have for obeying the commands of government. But do they go far enough and establish a standing moral obligation to do, all other things being equal, whatever government commands us to do? Unsurprisingly, there are many critics of these theories that believe that they still do not go far enough, and I find myself uh, in agreement with them. To take gratitude theory, for example, from the fact that I've benefited in certain defined respects from government, does it follow that I am under a general moral obligation to do whatever government tells me to do? From the fact that government has been my benefactor, especially when it's been my benefactor at the expense of lots of other taxpayers, um, does it follow that government, uh, if it's been my benefactor, can then unilaterally set the terms and price of that beneficence? In no other personal relationship would we think that that follows. So why should we think it follows in the case of government? This brings us to our final theory of political obligation, and one we are principally interested in here tonight, and that is consent theory. Like the gratitude and the fair play theories, consent theory seeks to ground political obligation in a direct, voluntary, or chosen transaction or interaction between the individual and his government or civil society. Unlike the gratitude and the fair play theories, however, consent theory emphasizes or foregrounds the voluntary aspect itself by making, as its name suggests, the act of consent itself the basis of political obligation. It is almost universally recognized, after all, that in general, a person's agreeing or promising or contracting or otherwise consenting to do something is capable of creating a moral obligation for them to do that thing. Consent theory, accordingly, merely seeks to apply this universal moral intuition and observation that we have to the question of political obligation in particular. Well, consent theory itself comes in a number of varieties. There's hypothetical consent, according to which the consent given needn't be actual consent, but the consent that one might supposedly reasonably expect someone to have given if offered the chance. Because the basis for this hypothetical consent, however, usually ends up being just some consideration of the individual's moral duties to consent, if they were given the option, it has been plausibly argued that hypothetical consent theories end up just reducing to a kind of natural duty theory that we considered earlier. 
and therefore is subject to the same limitations. Another form of consent theory involves tacit or implicit consent. We are obligated to obey government's commands because we have tacitly or implicitly consented to their rule. A consent that we have implied by our willingness, for example, to remain under their jurisdiction and not emigrating somewhere else. The problem with the tacit consent theory was famously pointed out by David Hume. If a sleeping man was placed on a ship that then set out to sea, the fact that when the man wakes up, he chooses to remain on the ship rather than jumping overboard cannot be taken as his tacit consent to do whatever the owners or captain of the ship command him to do. Likewise, in order for one's residence within a state to be counted as tacit consent to that government, there have to be both known and feasible alternatives. And for the vast majority of human beings, those alternatives simply do not exist. More than this, the very premise of tacit consent theory, namely that governments have the authority to kind of declare a certain geographic area as their jurisdiction, such that to remain within that jurisdiction is to tacitly consent to their authority, assumes the very thing it needs to be proved, that needs to be proved. It assumes that one must already have the obligation to obey a government's claims regarding its own jurisdiction, such that by then residing within that jurisdiction, you then establish your obligation to obey the government. It's circular reasoning. Well, this brings us at last to the one theory that nearly everyone, even the great skeptic David Hume and even anarchists, believe to be at least sufficient to establish political obligation, and that is the theory of express consent. Through an overt, public, and uncoerced act of agreement, individuals are generally recognized as being capable of creating for themselves the moral obligation to obey a particular government. Evidence of this is uh, found in every time an immigrant to the United States becomes a citizen by taking an oath to uphold the Constitution. There it is, express consent theory in action. Everybody admits it. If express consent is so widely recognized as a possible and sufficient means of establishing political obligation, why then, why then doesn't everyone adhere to express consent theory as the way of establishing political obligation? Well, the answer is not difficult to appreciate. Aside from these naturalized immigrants we just spoke of, very few people have ever actually given their express consent to be ruled by their government. And that's the objection. It just it doesn't happen. So, but this means that the objection, principally, to express consent theory is not so much a philosophical one as it is a practical one. Except for immigrants, governments do not impose this constraint upon themselves, asking their subjects for their express consent to their rule, nor do their subjects generally expect or demand of their governments that they should do so. But if there's been no express consent, and to the extent that other theories of political obligation fail, then we are led to a rather startling conclusion, which is that with respect to those commands that are only commands because the government has made them, there just appears to be no general political obligation to obey government as such. Well, this startling conclusion brings us finally to the question of how Christians especially might think about consent theory. Is it too radical and too demanding of a theory of political obligation to be compatible with the Christian faith? Or might it, in fact, be precisely the kind of theory that we ought to expect our radical and demanding faith to make of us? 
To begin, I want to point out that while consent theory in general is sometimes characterized as a modern enlightenment and liberal idea, its origins are actually quite ancient. While consent as a specific theory of political obligation is a relatively modern idea, as historians of the concept have pointed out, the role of consent in political life finds important antecedents in ancient Hebrew, Greek, and Roman thought. The Roman statesman and philosopher Cicero, for example, famously defined a commonwealth or political community as, quote, a body of men united together by consent to the law. I'm actually quoting Aquinas, quoting Cicero there, actually. Um, um, so what's a, what's a political community? A body of men united together by consent to the law. And St. Thomas Aquinas explained that the reason that custom is able to both create or annul law is because custom reflects the consent of the people to act or not act according to a particular law. In the early modern period, both Catholic and Protestant natural law theorists such as Francisco Suarez and Samuel Rutherford took for granted that the authority of government rested in the consent of its people. Actually, they didn't take it for granted. They argued for that conclusion. And it is a consent theory of political obligation that is enshrined in the American Declaration of Independence in its statement that governments, quote, derive their just powers from the consent of the governed. So while consent theory is sometimes blithely dismissed dismissed as overly individualistic and anti-community, anti-tradition, anti-custom, and anti-conservative, the reality is that the idea of consent is very much part of our tradition, of our custom, of our heritage, and hence our identity as Christians, as Westerners, and specifically as Americans. And speaking of custom and tradition, as Aquinas in effect points out, the authority of custom lies in the fact that it is a record and expression of prior consent. To not take consent seriously as a political principle, therefore, is not, I think, a conservative, but I think at least in our case, an anti-conservative posture. Another respect in which I think we should appreciate consent as a conservative principle is that it is fundamentally a principle of limited government. For many of its critics, of course, that's just the problem. Perhaps it imposes too great a limit on government, such that a consistent application of the logic of consent would prevent us from ever being able to create a stable political order and government capable of doing what we need them to do. These are concerns that warrant addressing but not at the cost of giving up our commitment to sound philosophical and moral reasoning and consistency. You've all heard the famous story of Benjamin Franklin being asked after the Constitution Convention what kind of government had been proposed, to which he answered, republic, a republic if you can keep it. I want to suggest that something like a robust consent theory of a political obligation is in fact a necessary ingredient for keeping, or in our case, returning to a republic such as ours was or was intended to be. Why? Because only such a theory of political obedience provides a sufficient incentive for government to stay faithful to its original mandate and to keep some factions within political society from co-opting government for their own purposes. So I view consent theory as a conservative principle in that sense. It's necessary to conserve a republic of limited government. Another perspective we might bring to consent theory as Christians is that it seems to me that it is actually consent theory that draws the strongest analogy between our political relations on the one hand and the other God-ordained institutions of the family and the church, on the other hand. While it is true that a man doesn't choose his parents or his siblings, he does, at least in the biblical tradition, get to choose his wife, and a woman must consent to be his wife. Medieval theologians such as Thomas Aquinas made this quite clear. So long as two people of the requisite legal age consented between themselves to be married, they were married, and there was nothing anyone else, their parents, the civil magistrate, or even the church, could do about it. 
That is the power of consent. And while the biblical teaching is that a man is never relinquished from his duty to honor his father and his mother, unlike the pagan Roman institution of the pater familias, for example, where the head of the family remained an authority over everyone in the family until he died, in the biblical tradition, a man chooses to leave his father and mother and form a new household, one that is no longer under the authority of his parents. I submit that a theory of political obligation informed by such a perspective of authority leans far more in the direction of consent theory than we might have thought. What about consent theory and church membership? Without a doubt, one of the downsides of the Protestant Reformation, or unfortunate consequences and its aftermath, was a loss of the sense of church authority. That having been said, one of the many things the Reformation got right was the conviction that one's community or one's traditions never absolve one of the responsibility of determining, determining for himself what the truth is. To quote Martin Luther's immortal words, quote, my conscience is a captive to the word of God, thus I cannot and will not recant, because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound. Here I stand, I can do no other. God help me. And one of the practical manifestations of this conviction is how we typically handle matters such as church membership. Every one of you here who is a member of a church are so because you likely took an oath and so consented to submit yourselves to the authority of that church. You identified the leadership of that church as sufficiently reliable or trustworthy as an interpreter of the Bible, which is the constitution and common law of every faithful church, if you will, such that you felt comfortable subjecting yourself or your family to its oversight. My question is this, if consent theory is good enough to explain our obligations to obey the authorities in the church, oughtn't it to be good enough to explain obligation in the political realm? Or are we only Protestants in our ecclesiology, but still de facto papists in our political philosophy? A final concluding consideration, and as promised, how might we reconcile a consent theory of political obligation with Romans 13? The answer is that, or at least one possible answer is, first, Romans 13 indeed teaches that God is the source of all political authority and obligation, and that one moral obligation that we clearly have is generally to support civil government in its God-appointed task of wielding the sword to punish the evildoer and to be a terror to bad conduct. If you're not doing this, you are in sin, right? If you're not supporting the civil government in its God-appointed task of wielding the sword to punish the evildoer and to be a terror to bad conduct, you're in sin. What Romans 13 does not contain, however, nor do I think it can be made to contain, is a specific or precise theory of political obligation explaining an individual's alleged obligation to do whatever the government tells him to do because of the government tells him to do it. In short, Romans 13 tells us to do what government says only when uh, what government says is precisely what Romans 13 says. Sorry, that was, I know that was a lot. Romans 13 tells us to do what government says only when what the government is telling us to do is what Romans 13 says, which is just enough to generally obligate us to support government in its overall task of suppressing the wrongdoer, and no more. For there to be a moral obligation to do more than this, which is to say, for there to be a political obligation to do what governments say because government has said it, some additional explaining, explanation or theory is necessary. And that, friends, is precisely what consent theory is trying to offer. Thank you.